Everything you perceive is actually inside of you. It's not outside of you. This is all a projection. The most important thing to know that you're safe is to make sure you're not deluded because circuit three needs to be grounded in reality. The ways that we achieve sanity or attempt to achieve sanity is to get confirmation from other people. Usually when an adult human is feeling anxious, it's not actually useful to their survival. Forcing yourself or like choosing a negative filter on reality is almost a way that you avoid disappointment and avoid the tension. An infinite player doesn't prepare against the future. The infinite player prepares himself for surprise. He prepares himself to be surprised. The ultimate self-love phrase, I think for men in particular, is I got your back. The separation of the ideal and reality is always gonna make you feel shitty. Can you not only accept things the way they are and perceive things the way they are, can you love them the way they are? The Ruando Podcast is an exploration of the unconscious and the game of life. Be sure to visit ruando.com to get a preview chapter of my upcoming book, Infinite Play, and free access to my content library. Enjoy the show. All right, we are live. Okay, and it's been a couple weeks if you do catch the live streams of these, but we are back. And uh, by we, I mean me, right? Um, so today we're going to be speaking about changing your filters on reality. This was a subject that was voted on in the Masculine Underground Forum. Um, I actually, uh, you know, I put a, a couple options and I let people add their own options. And I totally expected the one on um, um, Territorial Psych and Dominance Place to be voted on because there's a couple threads in the group about that. People voted on uh, changing your filter on reality. So we're going to speak about that today. And it kind of fits uh, my life because... Um, if you listen to the podcast, if you catch these live streams, you know, this year I've been really focused on Robert Anton Wilson's work and Timothy Leary's work. I like how it builds off of or weaves away from um, or builds off of uh, Carl Jung's work, which was my focus in 2019. Um, and my community members, we have a little community here in Thailand. We've been reading a Robert Anton Wilson book uh, called Cosmic Trigger, where he goes through his process of it's kind of a memoir ish of his process of brain change using, using Timothy Leary's framework, LSD, different, um, different substances and esoteric techniques on changing his filter of reality. And actually, uh, so last Friday was the full moon and um, kind of inspired by this book, uh, my friends and I, we took a bunch of acid uh, with the focus of changing our brains uh, in different ways. One of my buddies is quitting smoking or has quit smoking, D different things, right? Different uh, behavior changes. And um, within the book Cosmic Trigger, uh, not only do they speak about LSD use and, and brain change, um, in a way that I ha don't totally understand yet, we're still, like only halfway through the book, Robert Anton Wilson keeps mentioning Sirius, the dog star. It's like a significant star as an alchemical symbol. And he references Aleister Crowley's work and other like, you know, mystical things. And apparently the star is important. And um, towards the end of our acid trip, like maybe at, like one in the morning, um, my friends were on the roof and they were looking in, in the, um, looking at the sky and there was a star that was blinking or there's something in the sky blinking green and red and white in like, in like almost Christmas colors. It was very weird. And, um, so they called me upstairs and we all looked at it and it was like, are you, are you seeing this too? Like we're all seeing this thing. Like we're seeing this thing in the sky blinking red and white. Um, and I, I assumed it was like a, a tower that we hadn't noticed cause it was kind of a cloudy day. It was dark also, or like a some sort of airplane. Um, then my buddy took out his um, Astro, he has like um, the app for looking at the stars. 
and he, and he uh, put it up, and it was the dog star. It was serious. It was like an odd synchronicity. It was almost like Robert Arnton Wilson came back from the grave uh, to blink at us. Uh, so a bit of a synchronicity, um, random thing. But it was also funny, and we tie this into the whole theme of today, is that had I seen the star, like, had I seen this blinking thing in the sky um, by myself, I probably would have discounted it. I would have thought like, oh, I'm seeing things, or it's... Um, it's like an airplane or it's a tower that I wasn't aware of. And if you're just wondering, the reason why Sirius blinks in different colors sometimes is that when it's low in the sky, it's kind of like um, the same reason why sunsets become orange and purple sometimes. It's like when it's low in the sky, the, the light refracts through the, through the atmosphere in a way that can change, um, change the perceived color for us. Anyway, if I was looking at this thing by myself, I probably would have discounted it and like been like, oh, I'm just seeing stuff or this is something else. But the fact that, one, I was on acid, so I was really taking in, I was really like stopping to look at the stars rather than just like scanning the sky. And two, because I had more attention out, uh, which we'll speak about today. And two, I was with other people who can confirm my reality. Suddenly now I was able to filter out something in reality that was pretty significant, if only for our own personal meanings, as opposed to just discounting it. So that was just an interesting thing, given that I was already thinking about this topic. So... When it comes to changing filters of reality, um, there's a temptation, I think, you know, just like while thinking about it to go into this like matrixy, mystical sounding thing. And I, I'm going to touch on some ideas that maybe are unprovable, but I really want to ground us um, in being as practical as possible. I don't want to just talk about positive thinking or visualization, although we will reference that because I do think this is a lot more um, a tangible idea than um, most people assume. All right, so first I'm gonna start with a story uh, to perhaps demonstrate this. So uh, when I was young, I was really depressed. I, I speak about that periodically. And in my depression as a teenager, I would kind of float between nihilism and solipsism. So nihilism just being like, you know, because I was depressed, I was afraid of the world, things weren't going my way. I always felt like I was low status. I mean, which I'll talk about next episode on, on dominance hierarchies. But um, I would go into this nihilistic uh, headspace, which I think a lot of people, when they're depressed, go into, where it's like, everything's meaningless, I can't, I have no effect on reality, like, you know, life is meaningless, right? Like, nihilism and depression kind of go together. But then almost as like a way to like, combat the nihilism within myself, like I'd be nihilistic all day, like going to, going to high school and not caring about anything, thinking everything is for nothing. And then I would go into this like kind of headspace, kind of as, I think, a way to, to it was like my unconscious attempt to fight against my own nihilism, which I'd go into solipsism, which is the idea that um, maybe all of this is just a projection of my consciousness. Maybe I'm just imagining all of this. I can't, because in solipsism, it's like the philosophy uh, that the only thing you can possibly prove exists is your own mind, right? Your own perception. Like this cup might be a projection of my consciousness. This piece of paper, you guys, everyone you meet might just be a, might, this all might be a dream. It might all be a simulation made for you. It might be the Truman Show. Um, but what you do know exists is your own conscious, is your own ability to perceive stuff. Anyway, you can go very deep into this. And I, I went, I've gone in deep into this in different points in my life. I'm like, well, maybe every, if nothing matters, um, great, I have nothing to fear. And I would do these weird things um, when I was young because I was really afraid of everybody and afraid of the world. And I'd kind of do these weird things that to counteract this, like, um, you know, I'd be terrified of human beings. I would be getting, you know, bullied or robbed during the daytime. But then at night, I would take the bus to like these really dangerous areas of Brooklyn and then just walk around 
um, like with this idea, like, oh, this is all a projection of my consciousness. None of this is real. And I would even like um, when I was when I really had bad insomnia. Sometimes I would sneak out of my parents' house, my house, at like 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. in my pajamas. Um, and then like walked, you know, I didn't live in the worst neighborhood, but I didn't live in the best neighborhood, but I would find like a really bad part of the neighborhood and I would just walk around until I found something weird. Like I would find like a passed out or like something dark, like a passed out homeless person or a junkie or a couple times, like I would like walk into like gang members hanging out on the street and like, they'd be like, Oh, let's, let's go fuck this, this guy up. And I would end up running home and I feel this adrenaline rush. And, like that's what I did for kicks. Um, when I was a depressed teenager. Anyway, at a certain point, I, I got really into goal setting, and the first thing, like my first intro to self development, was physical culture. So I started working out. I was like, oh, if I set a goal, I can, you know, if I set a goal to lift weights X number of times, you know, I, I see this change in my body, and, and combat sports became a huge part of that. I'll also speak about combat sports next week when we speak about dominance hierarchies, but I um, just was one, one particular piece of that is that um, I noticed how. You know, uh, working on my body changed my life and raised my self-esteem. Great stuff. And then I became very obsessed with this idea of goal setting. If like, um, if I set a goal and I think positively and I act positively, then I'll get a result. I mean, that's what I noticed with weightlifting. That's why I noticed boxing. So um, when I started senior year of high school, I listed like I, I wrote this whole thing on a composition notebook, maybe three pages of all the things I wanted to experience that year. And then I wrote down all the action steps that I had to do for each thing. And I wrote down the mindset for each thing, because that's what all the self-development books said to do. And I created the schedule for myself where every day I'd wake up at 5 a.m., I would go running, because that's what you have to do for good cardio. Then I would get to school at 7 a.m. to work on my architecture portfolio, because that's what you had to do to get into a good college. And then every, every part of my day, from socializing, um, working out, wrestling practice, boxing practice, every like half hour of my day was like obsessively scheduled um, with an action step to get the goal. As you might have guessed, I ended up burning out. And what happened when I started burning out and my body started shutting down, I just didn't have enough energy because I wasn't sleeping enough. Um, resentment started to build up. I had all these people in my life that, was trying to, that were trying to help me, but I was becoming, I was like blaming them for me feeling bad. I'm like, my boxing coach would uh, suggest something, I'd be like, get so resentful at him in my head, or my wrestling coach, or my, there was a, a, an art teacher in my school who was helping me with my portfolio, and like, I would get, start just getting mad at everyone. Resent, we're talk, gonna talk about resentment today as far as a filter. And like everything, I, I was like, in my head, I was like, these people don't know how hard I'm working, they keep asking me to do, like, you know what resentment sounds like, right? So I had this, like, we could call it a negative filter on reality. Um, I had won an exhibition boxing match that I won, but my first real fight was in the Golden Gloves. Um, I had been training for like maybe seven months at this point, and like my body was totally shut down. Like my like I was exhausted. My legs were shot, and but the whole time I'm like saying motivational quotes in my head, Muhammad Ali quotes. I'm like, you know, you just gotta you just gotta man up and think positive, and this will happen. So I got in the ring. And the first round goes by, and I'm like way slower than the guy. Like my my legs are shot. My I could barely move my arms. He's tagging me. Um, he he cut me over here. He was, there's blood on his gloves, and I'm like totally dejected. I'm like I'm like I'm like giving up in my head. And the whole time I'm like I can't even land a punch on this guy. He's too fast. One round passes. Another round passes. I could keep going back to my corner, and my trainer's like, "It's a close fight. You're doing good." And in my head I'm like, "Fuck off." I'm like, "Why are you Why are you lying to me right now? I know I didn't land a single punch." Uh, whatever. Um, final round passes, and I go back to my corner, and uh, you know, the whole time I'm, I, I, 
the guy has hit me a bunch of times and I haven't landed a single punch. So I'm like, wow, like, I, I can't believe I got so humiliated. And I go back to my corner and my trainer's like, you know, it was a close fight. You did good. Well, let's, let's see what the judges say. Like, I think you got that. And in my head, I'm like, why are you being nice to me? Like, and I was like, like, I was just resentful. He's taking off my gloves and like my head is down and I'm like shaking my head and I look over and there's five judges in, an, um, in a Golden Gloves fight. Um, one of the judges was looking at me because they're on they're different sides of the ring. Only one judge could really see me. One of the judges was looking at me and I saw him see me shake my head and then he looked down at his paper and he wrote something. I didn't think much of it. Um, the, the announcer reads the decision and I lost the fight, a split decision, two to th or three to two. So two judges thought that I won. And I was like, that's weird. I, I don't understand that. I started walking out of the ring and then the crowd is like, you got robbed, you won that fight, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, like, why are these people being nice to me? Like, I don't even know these people. Like, why are they all lying to me? I was getting resentful of them for like saying nice things to me when I clearly didn't even land a single punch. Anyway. Uh, maybe a week later, I watched the tape and I actually landed many punches. It was actually a very close fight. But for some reason, I completely filtered all of that out. Like, honest, honest to God, I couldn't remember landing a single punch, but I remember getting punched in the face a lot. I was like, that's weird. Like, my memory was so faulty. Like, like what I thought happened and what I remembered happening, what actually happened was so faulty. And on top of that, I look back at that moment where my head was down and my, my, the reality that I perceived was that I did terribly and the judge, and it was a close fight, like I understand why two thought I won and two thought I lost and one wasn't sure because that one looked at me and he was waiting for me to give him the cue on whether to say whether I won the last round or not, um, which I guess determined the fight. So if there's any, I mean, I'm telling this story just to show like, even if you don't believe in the law of attraction, if you don't, don't believe that like, you know, and, and I don't know exactly, I mean, it's, it's a... It's an unprovable belief, right? Do, do your thoughts actually make things? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to comment on that. But certainly your perceptions, uh, your mindset affects what stimuli you take in and the reality you perceive. And the reality you perceive affects the reality other people perceive. Because that judge in that boxing match didn't know who won. Or I, I assume, this is my story. I, I think it's true, but I, don't, I really don't know. He was waiting to see what my cue was. And because I was so sure that I lost... He was like, well, if that, guy's, if that guy thinks he lost, well, maybe he lost. And, and it had a real implication on my material reality. Because we could just imagine, like, had I snuck by on that fight, I would have advanced to the next round. I would have been rested. My, I would felt better. I maybe, maybe could have won the tournament. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not. Who knows? I never got that far. But uh, your beliefs and your perceptions not only affect what you take in into the reality you perceive, but also what other people perceive. Something we're going to keep going back to is that reality is pretty much a set of hallucinations by a bunch of people and whatever people perceive as normal or what is the ex exact reality or you know, quote unquote objective reality is based on the perceptions of many people. And depending on how you perceive and how you communicate what you perceive can change what the collective perceives. Anyway, so um, I want to reference uh, an idea by Anil Seth, who had a, um, a really great TED talk. You can look it up. Um, I think it's titled um, How Your Brain Hallucinates Reality or something. If you, if you Google TED talk, Anil Seth, it's got this great talk um, about how essentially reality, the reality we experience is a controlled hallucination. And this, uh, this is an idea that I've, I've shared in, in other podcasts. I mean, and you know this, I'm sure. What you see is not actually necessarily what's there. 
your eyes take in lights, you know, this here's a yellow cup, uh, wait, or a mirrored, here's a yellow cup, your eyes take in lights, it's actually a reverse image in your brain, but your brain, the optical part of your brain, uh, makes an educated guess based on the light it receives to perceive this cup. Same thing for everything you hear, uh, see, smell, taste, like your brain is recreating um, what it thinks is there based on the signals that, that, that you're taking in. So if you take a hallucinogen or you get hit in the head or something else happens, um, it changes how your brain processes the stimuli, which is why you take a bunch of acid, maybe this cup starts waving or becomes something you, you see in, uh, an entity that you wouldn't normally see or something like that. It's changing how you're perceiving reality. Um, and with that, if you, if you consider that, and this is a Robert Anton Wilson idea, it's like uh, you have two heads then, right? There's the head that you can perceive uh, using your eyes and your your hands and like you're just feeling it there. But all of this exists inside of your head. So, I mean, this is kind of his you know silly way of saying like everything you perceive is actually inside of you. It's not outside of you. This is all a projection. Now, you can go, you know, if you go into the solipsic route, you can go, you know, kind of deep in... Um, Oh, I mean, nothing is real. Nothing matters. I'm not. I'm not going to go in that direction. All I'm going to say about solipsism is that I've gone very deep into solipsism. It doesn't feel good. Like, it, it, like if you if you really look at people as if they're just a projection of your consciousness, there's something like deep that doesn't feel good about that. Um, because whether or not people are a projection of your consciousness, you might as well treat them as real. But anyway, the purpose of today's podcast and discussion is to talk about actively uh, changing your filters of reality so you have experiences that are not diluted, but they are shifting you towards what you want versus what you don't want. And like the story that I just told is an example of like, my filters actually changed my reality so that it ended up results that I didn't want. And you see this all the time, right? Like a, maybe a more relatable example, I mean, for any, any guy who maybe struggled with dating or meeting women, I, I mean, I hear this all the time from guys like, I mean, I haven't done a lot of uh, in-field coaching, but once upon a time I did, and I experienced this myself, where like, a guy would go speak to a woman at a bar, and um, the conversation would be fine. It wouldn't be like maybe amazing, it was just like a normal conversation, and there'd be a slight lull in the conversation, and the guy would put his head down and leave. And, and you're like, why did you leave? Like, she, you guys were talking, it was fine. It's like, no, she, we didn't have anything to say, she must have hated me. It's like, no, no, that's, that's just how conversation works. Like, so much of what I've seen in, in like, dating boot, uh, boot camps or those kind of things is like sometimes the best advice guys need um, is just to stay in the conversation. Like uh, I have a friend who, who went on this trip to Bucharest and like he ended up having this like crazy night with these like this foursome with these uh, beautiful Romanian women and the, the lesson that he told me was just like every time that I thought everything was bad and I had to leave I just stayed there. And he just stayed there. And it went against my, my uh, negative filter that things were bad. And he just stayed there and he had an, like, an amazing, amazing night. Anyway, this stuff always, I mean, I'm sure you have examples in your own life where a, a slight, a misperception or a slight perception or projection of something that wasn't true made that thing true. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Anyway, so um, I want to propose the idea that as reality is a controlled hallucination, even without taking drugs, um, you actually have a, a larger sway on the reality you experience than most people think. I mean, uh, I want to go a little bit beyond positive thinking because I think a lot of times when people go deep into the law of attraction idea, there's a very, um, you're, the way that most people speak about it in like the hippie new age world, I think it leaves you vulnerable to um, delusion. Uh, and I'll define delusion as being very separate from collective reality. Okay, 
So we speak about this in two parts. Um, first, we want to understand uh, the layers of reality before we go into practical application. Do I want coffee or water? Let's go with coffee. It's getting cold. <clears throat> okay. So we want to understand the layers of reality. So there's many ways to slice up reality. Obviously, this is all conceptual. Um, but one way that Timothy Leary does that I think is useful for our purposes is that there are three layers of reality as far as we're concerned. We're actually going to just be referencing two, but there's the geosphere, which is physical things. It's like inanimate objects. I mean, there are man-made objects, but rocks and uh, this is what uh, is covered in physics and chemistry and geology and meteorology and all that, all that stuff, like physical things in space, material reality. A layer up from that, and, and, and it follows the laws of physics and the laws of thermodynamics is constantly moving towards entropy and disorganization. Um, I mean, that's, that's all we have to say about that. Then there's the biosphere. The biosphere is made of living matter. Um, this is what we speak about in biology or cover in biology. And what's significant about the biosphere is that the biosphere is made up of matter as well. But it's matter that's organized with uh, what we could call intelligence or information. I mean, maybe intelligence is not the best word. Um, because I saw a Buckminster Fuller uh, idea, or he has a quote on this. I'm not going to remember it off the top of my head. But how um, everyth everything uh, non-living in the world follows the second law of thermodynamics, entropy. It's constantly becoming more and more disorganized and homogenized. But there is a force that fights against entropy. That, that uh, moves towards negentropy or, or anti-entropy, and that is life. Life uh, is, you know, anything, any matter that somehow organizes itself to have parts of it that try to replicate itself. That's our DNA, uh, or parts of our chromosome, the genome, whatever. Um, and for, for reasons that we don't really know, uh, organizes itself into, um, organizes matter in a way that it has uh, very low entropy, right? Like uh, an amoeba has way less entropy than a, a, a puddle of water. Um, a human being has way less entropy. I mean, like the, the amount of organization of all the cells and matter that make up you as a human being is so anti-entropy. It's like such a high level of, um, what's the word? Complexity, right? It's the opposite of entropy. So the biosphere uh, goes against the geosphere. And we could trip out on that, but I, I'm going to bring us back to filter of reality, which is the, the final layer that we're going to concern ourselves with is the newosphere. The newosphere is the world of ideas. So obviously it's a conceptual world. It's not a physical world. But it has an effect on our reality just as much as anything, in fact, arguably more than the other layers. The neosphere is, uh, you can imagine it conceptually as like a realm where all ideas exist, right? Ideas don't take up physical space, but they, they are somewhere. Or like a lot of our language when it comes to um, like your head space, your, your mental space, your mental maps, like we use spatial language for ideas probably just because we're three-dimensional creatures and we perceive space the way we perceive space, so it's easier for us to conceptualize even ideas. So the newosphere, um, in terms of Leary's uh, eight-circuit uh, consciousness model, uh, is, what, is the part of our brain that uses um, uh, or creates mythology, has ideas, uh, uses language and semantics, What's up, Roger? Oh, yeah, I mean, I forget to mention this, but if you're watching this uh, live, feel free to comment and ask questions. I mean, I have, I have a structure of what I'm speaking about, but I, I love answering questions on the fly. Or if you have input, I'm happy to read it anonymously, even though I just mentioned a name, but I think that person doesn't matter. Okay. Um, so the circuit, the circuit three consciousness, and we're, you know, last, last uh, two weeks ago, we spoke about circuit four consciousness, which is our social mapping and like our awareness of social structures and morality and norms and taboos and shame. Um, we're going a little bit more primitive here 
um, because the circuit four, um, we've evolved to have circuit four to kind of control circuit three. Circuit three is our, our semantic brain, our ability to label things and map out reality and, um, and, and perceive time and stuff like that, right? Um, circuit one and circuit two are like what dogs have, our reptilian brain, our, our paleomammalian brain. Next week, we're going to talk about circuit two and how circuit two specifically works between males and dominance hierarchies. Right now, we're talking about circuit three. So circuit three, the reason why we humans or life evolved to have a circuit three is that um, uh, social animals, uh, dogs, lions, whatever, birds, chickens. I have, I just, um, I have a small hobby farm now with eight chickens. And it's really interesting watching the dominance hierarchy there. I'm going to talk about this more in the dominance hierarchy episode, but like chickens really do have a pecking order. Like there's, it's very clear who's the alpha and who's like the low, low man on the total pole. Um, anyway, circuit, circuit uh, three is limited though, because if you heard of Dunbar's number, we can only have so many social relationships before our, before the RAM in our, our mammalian brain gets maxed out. Circuit three was in a way that by connecting to ideas and mythology, now human beings uh, can organize with groups way bigger than um, our social capacity, right? Like, so if you have this idea that you are an American or you are a Christian or you are um, a socialist or something, and you have like these identity um, ideas, right? Because like a social, like what is, I mean, all of these things are ideas, right? They don't exist physically in matter. But if enough people believe in the United States of America and like the boundaries of it and what it means to be American, if enough people agree what it means to be a Muslim or a Christian, now you have this real implication of this idea um, in terms of how it affects reality. I mean, we know that nations and wars and religions and, you know, real things that have impacted the earth have been uh, largely uh, directed by things that are not physical. So these ideas to say that the neosphere isn't real reality is not true because actually probably more than meteorological forces, the ideas that uh, humans throw around does have the biggest effect on our actual lived reality. That you've been binging on this podcast called um, Martyr Maid. I'm gonna try to get the the um, the uh, the host Gidel Cooper on uh, soon, but he's covering the the Israel Palestine conflict, and it's just so fascinating on how like these key um, arguments, like there's these key moments in the Israel Palestine conflict in in history where someone convinced someone else, or someone convinced in a critical group of people, and that totally shifted history and totally shifted like the real lives of millions of people because of, like these small I mean, not small, but like these uh, almost arbitrary arguments in terms of what people perceive as reality. Anyway, this is all to say that the newosphere is very important is what we're going to speak about most because um, there's no evidence or no proof. I'm not saying I don't believe it. I'm not saying I do believe it, that you thinking will like make gold appear in the world, right? But certainly what you think affects what other people think and what other people think affects what is delivered to you in material reality. That's what we want to get back to. So... Just briefly referencing this, I, I cover the, the, the first four circuits in Leary's consciousness model in the Prometheus Rising episode, like, I don't know, it's like six months ago now. So I'm just going to very briefly go over um, every circuit in our consciousness uh, evolved at a certain point in, in, the, in the evolution of life with a purpose. So circuit one uh, seeks safety, right? Um, a fish will move towards something that gives it nourishment away from something that uh, is not safe. Like that's, that's, that's its M.O., um, a, an infant child um, is running on that same circuit one, will move towards nourishment, move away from anything that feels bad. Seeking safety. Circuit two, which we'll talk about next week, um, seeks inclusion, right? Um, it also seeks, uh, you know, uh, 
some part, uh, some part in the dominance hierarchy. Like it's all about um, status. It's all about inclusion. Circuit four also is aware awareness of status, which we spoke about a few weeks ago. Circuit three, though, is kind of the hardest to understand because it, it seems the most human. It is the most human. It, it's like circuit one and circuit two, and even circuit four. We could be like, oh, those are animal instincts, right? Um, like that's uh, you know, dominance plays. That's just chest beating or like. Being anxious, oh, that's our that's our reptilian brain trying to run away from a predator and just doesn't, doesn't fit the real world. Circuit three is kind of hard to um, to, to grasp because it, it, it's um, it's the it's our reason brain. It's like how we logically perceive the world. Circuit three seeks sanity. Now you, you might be wondering, like, what does sanity have to do with survival? Well, if you consider that this circuit three evolved to map out the world, right? And there's like a you know, this, this circuit three is what allowed humans to take over the world, right? Like we could uh, project things in the future. We can make plans. We can organize in groups way bigger than Dunbar's number. We can um, decide like, oh, we're going to build a pyramid over this number of months. We're going to build a skyscraper. We're going to hunt. We're going to invade this territory. Here's this battle campaign. All of these are circuit three things. We're going to build an iPhone. We're going to invent, uh, we're going to discover different things in math. All of this happens with circuit three. So for a circuit three being, or for a consciousness that's, let's say, purely circuit three, the most important thing to know that you're safe is to make sure you're not deluded, right? Because if I, if I start perceiving this not as a cup, but as like an orangutan, uh, that's pretty bad. Like, cause like, let's say, you know, let's say I, I get hit in the head and I'm now perceiving this cup as something that no one else perceives it. That's the scariest thing for circuit three because circuit three needs to be grounded in reality, which is why uh, circuit three is so um, focused on... Uh, labeling things. The whole the whole idea behind circuit three, in the same way that circuit one, uh, you know, will, will circuit circuit one causes anxiety, and anxiety is supposed to be a, a survival mechanism, right? Like if anything makes you feel anxious, is initially when when we evolved to be able to feel anxious is because there's something that could threaten our, our immediate survival. Uh, as a modern day human, when most of us feel anxious, it's not because there's something threatening our survival. It's actually kind of a misplaced. Um, function it doesn't mean that it's bad. It's just that the way it shows up in our lives as adult human beings in the 21st century often is misplaced and not useful. Usually, when a, an adult human is feeling anxious, it's not actually useful to their survival. Same thing with circuit three is that um, uh, just labeling something might have been useful at one point, like in our primitive consciousness, but labeling things actually gets us into trouble. And just the last thing on the circuit one and circuit two, um, circuit one and circuit two, you know, they're very animalistic things. We can observe them in most animals and they're homeostatic uh, functions, right? Like it, uh, it tries to get you away from anything dangerous. It tries to put you into the social hierarchy in some form. Circuit three is not homeostatic. It's uh, instead of being negative feedback, we're trying to bring you back to normal. Circuit three, if you ever, if you've ever gotten high and like thought about what you're thinking about and then thought about what you're thinking about what you're thinking about like you can really spin out if you just like think and think and think you can spin like you can you can go so deep into your thoughts that you disconnect from everyone else in reality and it can like freak you out right i mean i, I know yeah anyway paranoia is an example of this so circuit three the the one of the main goals of circuit three is to make sure that we're not thinking about things that don't make sense right um uh, and the ways that we uh, achieve sanity or attempt to achieve sanity is to get uh, confirmation from other people. So like I, I told the story in the beginning of this episode about my friends and I tripping on acid and seeing um, Sirius the dog star flashing uh, Christmas colors. Had I seen that by myself, I probably would have been like, 
that's not a thing. I'm just seeing stuff. And I probably would have forgotten about it because it feels, I, I didn't know, I didn't know the science of like why, uh, why a star low in the sky can flash. I had to look that up. But if had I seen that without that knowledge, I would have been like, I'm just tripping right now. And I wouldn't have thought much of it. The fact that two of my friends could also see this made me think, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm actually seeing something that's real. And we looked it up and, and understood it. Um, uh, and this, this ties into uh, a little bit what I spoke about a couple weeks ago about why we um, often defer to other groups. I mean, there's the, um, I'm forgetting what the principle is in Cialdini's, but like, you know, the experiment, you may have heard of the experiment of like a bunch of people are staring up in the sky and pointing, and then everyone who walks by will also stare up at the sky and point. They don't know what, what they're looking at or why they're looking at something, but just the fact that there's a group of people staring up at the sky makes that part of you, that part of your primitive brain think, well, there must be something good up there, right? If all these people are looking up there, like, you know, it's the whole monkey see, monkey do thing. So one way that we seek sanity and our circuit three tries to feel safe is uh, confirmation from other people. This is also where we could get into trouble. We're going to talk about brainwashing and advertising and just like bad, bad mental scripts. The other thing that uh, we do, uh, our circuit three does, is that it seeks certainty over possibility. Anytime uh, you're unsure about this, uh, what things might be or uh, unthink, uh, unsure of the future, that circuit three part of you, when it's feeling shitty, when it's feeling like, oh, I don't know what reality is, it goes for certainty. And the way this um, can negatively impact us is that um, a lot of people, a lot of us will choose certain failure over the possibility that things are good or bad, right? Because like, let's say, I mean, very recently I expressed my my love and desire for a woman that I'm very attracted to. And I didn't know what she was going to respond. I don't know how she was going to respond. And just in that, you know, from the decision, like I want to tell her how, she, uh, how, how I feel about her to finding out how she felt about me. There's a lot of tension in that, right? It just, it's like, I don't know. I don't know if um, it's going to be good or not. And there's a tendency, I noticed this tendency in my own head, excuse me, uh, this tendency in my own head to assume the worst or think the worst or like I think it, when, when I was younger in situations like this, I would actually convince myself of like I'd, I'd pick out some evidence of like something stupid like, oh, she looked away when I was talking. That means she doesn't like me. No point of even asking and just deciding the worst possibility because typically negative possibilities we can have control over. Like you can force yourself into a loser role, but if you're trying to see if you're winning or not, you kind of have to see what's going to happen. So it sees a lot like, when people self-sabotage whether it's asking out someone or going for something or competing in something, there's a tendency to want to quit because by quitting, you can bring yourself to certainty right away because your circuit three consciousness doesn't like being in that state where it doesn't know, I guess the whole Schrodinger's cat thing, is the cat dead or alive? Like it, that, that, that's really uncomfortable to circuit three. Circuit three wants to have certainty, even if that certainty means, oh, guess what? You're the loser. Like, no, no. Um, but obviously, if you want to really create a reality, it's a welcome surprise. So, um, and I think this is why a lot of people um, indulge in insecurities like, oh, I'm too fat, I'm too short, I'm too dumb, um, I, I'm not smart enough to do this thing. You know, there's a whole list of insecurities both men and women have in various uh, situations. When we indulge in insecurities, because I was really thinking about negativity, like why do we seek negativity? Forcing yourself or like choosing a negative filter on reality is almost a way that you avoid disappointment and avoid the tension of, does she like me? Does she not like me? Am I going to win or am I going to lose? Is this, thing, is this venture going to make money or not? It's like trying to fight, it's trying to avoid the tension of possibility so you pick certainty even if that certainty means failure. Um, anyway, so uh, 
one important thing is to just simply fight that. And this is, this is a major part of infinite game theory. I'm going to read some quotes from Finite Infinite Games. Um, but an infinite player, as opposed to a master player, uh, actually, I do want to actually make this distinction. So most personal development, uh, I mean, you know, Kars is not the only person to, to frame reality as a game. Many people do. You can, it's very easy to uh, view reality as an RPG or something like that. Um, and uh, most, most personal development and most people, I think, focus on being what Kars calls a master player. A master player is someone who becomes so good at a given game, at a certain finite game, a finite game being a game that you can win or lose and it has an end. Um, some people get, become so focused on becoming master players, so good at winning finite games that they can... Um, uh, guess what the other person's going to do in every moment, and that way they can ensure they're, they're going to win. That's how they protect themselves against the future. So in chess, uh, uh, a chess grandmaster can, you, you make your first move and the chess grandmaster already knows everything you're going to do and they have an answer to everything and that's how they checkmate you. Um, a master player in basketball or a master player in the stock market or a master player in dating or a master player in uh, anything you could think of uh, is protecting himself against the future by knowing every single possibility because he learned the game so well. Obviously, you can't do that with every single game. It takes a lifetime to master every single finite game that you'll come across in life. Um, but also, that in itself instills or reinforces, the, or implies rather, it has the implication that, um, that you're not safe against the future. So you have to protect yourself against the future. There's some practical aspects to that. But that's the, I mean, I'm sharing some stuff on my list about abundance. Um, this is the opposite of abundance. To really, I mean, it's not bad to be good at games, but to feel like you need to master every game uh, is the opposite of abundance. Like even when I was doing, um, like when I was my first entry into learning social skills and dating skills and confidence was in the pickup world. And the pickup world is full of anxiety and scarcity. And like you need to have an a, a old school pickup was like guys were actually learning word for word routines so they would have something to say because they could not allow the spontaneity of real organic conversation, which is the opposite of abundance. It's the opposite of confidence as opposed to what Kars calls infinite play. An infinite player doesn't prepare against the future. The infinite player prepares himself for surprise. He prepares himself to be surprised. And that is one way that you can overcome this circuit three limitation of trying to seek certainty, even negative certainty, as opposed to welcoming what happens. Um, so to me, the, the antidote to negativity or, or, or insecurity indulgence is not thinking positive because very often, just like I was speaking about in my boxing story, like just putting on a, a, a sugary positive overlay, it doesn't really, and some part of you, if, if you do have negative uh, programs running, just putting on a positive overlay or saying positive affirmations, it's not gonna stick probably. A part of you is gonna roll your eyes and think it's corny. As opposed to welcoming yourself for surprise, which goes back to my whole self-love thing that I share a lot, which is like the ultimate self-love phrase, I think for men in particular, is I got your back. No matter what, no matter what shit life throws at us, I'm with you, self. And then, you know, it's, it's uh, a lot better than trying to prepare against everything. Anyway, um, the other way that our circuit three tries to protect against the future and tries to seek sanity and fights against uh, possibility or uncertainty is by labeling. And this goes back to, um, I've, I mentioned this quote a few times by um, Alfred Korzybski, language creates reality. Or, uh, you know, the person who controls the language controls reality because the reason why um, I really want to focus on the circuit three thing is that most people because we use our language to communicate. I mean, right now I'm using circuit three communication to, to share these ideas with you. Language is how, you know, this is how we do it, um, how we share information primarily. Um, 
it's very easy to confuse the map and the territory, meaning it's very easy to confuse a word for the actual thing the word represents. A word is always an abstraction of an idea. We're calling this a cup, but the word cup is not the same thing as the cup. Even the image of the cup is not the same thing as the cup, right? The cup is its own thing. And, you know, we can, we can go philosophical trippy if, like, you can never really perceive the cup the way it is. You're always, you're always taking in signals and reinterpreting it. You can say this about ideas. You're always taking in ideologies and then reinterpreting it. But I'm not going to go that far. I'm just going to mention what I just said. Labeling is a way that our circuit three tries to get a handle on reality. Um, uh, and it's important to recognize that because if you look at the way that people fight on the Internet. Cause like, so the Internet is kind of a circuit three uh, free-for-all. And, and I think one of the reasons why, uh, I mean, there's many reasons why people are, are idiots on the internet. One of them being that the only way we communicate on the internet, especially by text, is circuit three. So we miss, on emo we miss out on emotional nuance. We miss out on real connection. It's kind of like why people are assholes when they drive because they are in their separate boxes. So they don't get to feel the other people as real human beings. They're just like, it's just another car fighting for my space, which is why people are super assholes. Same thing like why... Um, you know, the meanest trolls on the internet would never say something that mean to someone's face because they couldn't. They wouldn't be able to. But Circuit 3, without, the, without the, being weighed down by emotions or empathy, you can just say some really mean shit because you don't have to recognize the other person has their own reality. <clears throat> um, anyway, limitations of language. So um, recognizing these three things, the fact that we confirm our reality with others, that we seek certainty over the possibility of things that are much better, and that we label things to get a handle on things, is that by itself is important to recognize that our, our, um, our reason brain, which you know, most of us uh, assume that our, our reason consciousness, our, our intellectual capacity, is the best way that we perceive the world, right? If you look at our emotions, like, oh yeah, our emotions uh, misread situations. Sometimes we get emotional uh, out of hand. Sometimes we have these experiences. Sometimes we, we go along with groupthink. But most of us think like, oh, reason is the best thing. Or our intellectual capacity is like the best circuit of our brains. But I just want to point out that it's also vulnerable to um, manipulation. In fact, most uh, advertising and brainwashing tries to feed off of this. And, and again, all right, looking at like, um, uh, identity politics or like a lot of the po political conflict throughout history, but I think especially in the internet era, is people abstracting things that are not real. I mean, I, I mean, I'm just going to bring this, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just going to bring this example because I think it's the easiest one, like with the way that people are calling each other racists in the United States right now. The word racist becomes so abstracted that it's like, if you ask people to define what racism is, it's not even the same thing that it used to be. It's, um, uh, Anyway, I'm not, I don't want to go on a political thing, but like, I would invite you guys to try to translate, when people use words, try to translate it back into the real material things. Because this is um, a, uh, what's his name? Owen Barfield idea, or I, I learned it from over Barfield, that when language was first created, um, every, every word that was spoken was describing a physical object or an action you could do with a physical object, right? That's like, you know, think of our cave, caveman ancestors. They're trying to like communicate beyond grunts. It's like, give me rock or whatever. I mean, I'm not sure how they actually spoke, but it's probably something like that, right? They didn't say, I have the authority to take this rock from you, right? Um, that, that came later. And every word that we have that doesn't reference a physical object or an, a physical action was initially a metaphor that if you look at the etymological root of any English word, or any word, I mean, I'm sure this is true for every language, 
if you go back in time far enough, it goes back to a physical object. It's like every generation to express higher and higher, more abstract ideas, they had to take things that we can relate to, um, like, you know, like if someone gives a speech and they've moved you, like what does that mean, they moved you? Like we're talking about something non-physical, but like we know what that means because we can imagine someone physically moving us and then like, oh, what does it mean to be emotionally moved? Like metaphor, right? Um, anyway, it becomes, uh, when people don't recognize when metaphors are being used, they can go into, you know, they can start wars with people that, that are their friends because, I mean, if you look at any genocide, uh, if you look at like the Rwanda genocide or Israel-Palestine conflict or, or uh, the Holocaust, it's like people perceive people's uh, circuit three perception of reality was changed so much that they were willing to end the life of someone else. Anyway, I just, anyway. Um, Someone commented, the key to abundance is to flow. Yeah, I mean, in, in reference to protecting yourself against failure or protecting yourself against um, uncertainty, it's being willing to go into the unknown. Like real abundance, right? It's not measured in dollars. It's can't, are, are, do you trust the future and do you trust yourself enough in the future that things are going to be okay, right? Do I know that I'm going to have X number of dollars in 12 months? No, but if I, if I really trust that all my financial needs will be met or all my social needs or whatever things will be met, I can welcome surprise and I can now instead of filtering out anything that doesn't fit this little box of what my intended future is, I can now welcome things that maybe I didn't even perceive. Anyway, I'm, gonna, I'm getting into it here. So if I have any process on, on filtering reality, it comes in two stages. Uh, first is removing clutter from your reality. I'm backwards. Removing clutter. And the second is once uh, clutter is removed, can you bring yourself to original perception? And this relates to terms you hear in, in Law of Attraction a lot, visualization and gratitude. But I'm going to try to dig into this more because going back to Circuit 3 Seek Sanity, um, the scariest thing for a Circuit 3 consciousness is to be deluded, right? There's like a parable. I think I've told this on the podcast before. I think, it was a, I, think I read this in a Tim Ferriss thing, but he was talking about how um, this Jewish parable uh, there's this tribe in the desert, and uh, this guy goes out, uh, goes out one day, and his, the rest of his family, the rest of his clansmen, drank from this specific well. And he comes back, and because they drank from this well, there was something in the water, and now they're all speaking crazy. I, I might not have actually brought this up in the last episode on social reality, but like, they're all speaking crazy, they're all um, acting crazy, and he doesn't know what to do because like, all this, like, they're, they're looking at him like he's the crazy one. His solution was to also drink from the well, right? Because um, the scariest thing is not what is objectively true. The scariest thing to our circuit three consciousness and our social consciousness is that we're the only person in our reality, right? We're social human beings. To be the only person that perceives something is one of the most terrifying things. So anyway, we need to, if we want to have a, uh, a more uh, effective filter on reality, we want to remove everyone else's filter as best we can or remove the filters that are imposed on us, especially in the internet age with advertising and pop-ups and all the media that's thrown at us, it's very hard to think for yourself. Everyone thinks they think for themselves, including myself, but like if you're exposed to other ideas, it's affecting your perceptions. So the best thing to do, and you know, if you, if you speak to any real mystic, like someone who's actually uh, uh, dived into like the esoteric uh, in, in a way that's legit as far as we can tell, they always cut, they always cut themselves off from usually... Uh, Usually such a hermit lives off in, in, off in the woods by himself. Why? Because even interacting with people in, in a village is, is affecting his ability to have original perception. Anyway, so for us, the, for those of us who are not going to live in the woods, 
Um, reducing your uh, electronic inputs, uh, going through an electronic media fast uh, already will help. Because if you if you just take some time off of social media and take time like not checking your email or constantly checking messages, you might not realize it because for most of us who are always on our phones, we don't realize how much of other people's perceptions of reality and other people's language and other people's lives become embedded into our uh, consciousness. It's very hard not to be affected, right? Unless you're a total sociopath who doesn't have a social brain, doesn't have a limbic system, the perceptions of other people are affecting you, right? The way we've learned to speak, the jokes we use, the phrases we use, the, the memes that we perceive the world in come from things we consume, whether it's people or media. I mean, most of our senses of the humor come from the, the shows that we watched when we were younger. Um, and the next level of that, or another level of that, and this is, this is where like, uh, it's, it's a bit of a mindfulness challenge, um, which is to remove value judgments. So very often we perceive something and we decide is it good or bad. We decide, uh, we make a judgment of a person of like, oh, they should or should not be. You know, I talked about should and, and shame in the last episode. Um, uh, and actually, I want to share this because like, I just had a guest on my podcast, this guy named Craig Parkin. He, he wrote a book on experiencing wealth. We had a great conversation. It's on the podcast, Rwanda podcast. It's the last episode. Um, if you want to check it out. He, he shared an, an idea with me, which is simple, but very profound in, in relating to other people, which is uh, there's a tendency to make people wrong when they don't fit your paradigm. And I, I was having this conflict with uh, someone I'm close with where this guy kept uh, disappointing me, right? He kept, uh, it had to do with integrity and, and like things that I consider values and I kept getting disappointed. And I recognized like there was a part of me that kind of delighted every time he fucked up in my eyes. Why? Because it confirmed my reality that he's a fuck up, right? This, this idea in my head, um, there's some part of me that my circuit three consciousness would rather be right would rather confirm this belief that it had than be delighted by the possibility that he was actually doing something that I preferred. And I could recognize this in my head where like, there'd be a situation where like, I didn't know if he was gonna do what he said or not. And a part of me was like almost happy that he would disappoint me again because it confirmed my reality. As opposed to removing the value judgment, which is hard, right? Because we have this tendency to try to seek certainty of like, let me just let him be the way he is. Let me just accept, not only accept him the way it is, but like, know that he is the way he is. Like so many relationship issues come from, especially between men and women, come from the man or the woman, um, assuming the other partner should behave like them, right? Men and women are obviously very different. So if you, if you treat your, 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 your wife or your, your girlfriend as if they, she should be acting like a man does, she's gonna disappoint you. Same thing if you, a woman treats her, her man like, why isn't he acting the way I do? Like he, she's gonna be consistently disappointed. And if she has this belief that he should act this way, her, some part of her consciousness, her circuit three consciousness, might actually delight in the fact every time he fucks up because uh, that part of you would rather be certain than be happy. Which brings us to the next thing around resentment. And I spoke about resentment in the, in the opening story about boxing. Um, resentment is a way of, again, circuit three trying to get a grasp on certainty. It's like, oh, why do things suck? It's because of all of these people. This is why my reality sucks. But re re resentment implies that you don't have control over reality. It implies that these other people are influencing your reality. And if you're constantly re resentment, resentful, you are telling yourself, you're, you're essentially brainwashing yourself or um, what's the word? Um, embedding uh, a belief into yourself that you do not have control over reality. And my whole thing with this whole episode is try to get you to at least perceive a little more 
that you do have a way bigger influence on the things that you um, experience than, than you may think. And it's not about magically manifesting things. It's like simply what you perceive and how you communicate tells other people how to communicate or how to perceive reality. And that does affect your material reality. Wars have been fought over it. Lovers have split apart or gotten together over these beliefs. Um, and same thing with regret. Uh, regret is uh, just almost the same thing as resentment, uh, only instead of um, holding other people responsible for reality, you're holding the, the past as responsible for your reality. So if you look at resentment, if you look at res regret, if you look about worry, which is like regret for the future, um, you can see like we're basically stripping away things that aren't this immediate moment of, of now, right? Can you And take away the value judgments, take away um, other people's perceptions. What are you left with? You're left with being here now and like the whole Eckhart Tolle, Ram Dass thing of like, can you perceive things exactly the way they are? And we'll take it to the next level, um, which is something Tim Thielery talks about. And, I, and Craig Parkin, who was on the podcast, uh, also said this in different words is, can you not only accept things the way they are and perceive things the way they are, can you love them the way they are? Can you meditate on things being exactly the way they are? Like this person that seems to be disappointing you, instead of trying to hold them to a standard that's something else, that's not who they are, can you actually like be like, this is exactly who they are. I'm, I'm having it exactly the way it is. And you know, it, it might seem like a silly uh, semantical distinction. I mean, it is a semantical distinction, but you're also like, you're shifting from this I separation of the way things are to this ideal, which is always gonna make you feel shitty. To like, this is the way things are. Now that doesn't mean you, uh, don't strive for things or desire things, we're going to talk about visualization in a second, is that you're allowing yourself to fully engage with reality instead of these negative filters which can only detract you from, from surprise. Um, I want to say this one thing about this uncertainty and surprise um, because when it comes to, like, you know, I, I've of course read a lot of goal setting, visualization, law of attraction, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I've had mixed results, uh, which is why I was like inspired to make this video, trying to Try to bring this down into a more concrete procedure because I'm sure anyone who's tried positive thinking has been like, oh yeah, positive thinking is better than negative thinking, certainly. But you can definitely get deluded. And there's a lot of new agey people who are living in their own worlds, trying to put sugary coats on things, and they're just like, their lives aren't getting better, right? We can see it from the outside. Um, harder to see it when we're doing it, but it's easy to see it from the outside. I was thinking about like with goal setting, right? Like many times in my life I've set money goals and like I'm going to have X number of dollars by this date and sometimes I get it and sometimes I don't. When I don't, I feel shitty. When I do, it's like, oh, okay. And I was thinking like what are, what's the like, right way to visualize? And like first of all, what's the purpose of visualization? Simply just the psychological principle of priming, the priming effect, selection bias. If you think about red cars, you will start to notice the red cars that were already there, right? purpose of visualization is that if you visualize this outcome that you want, if you, if you decide, right, you're collapsing the wave function in a sense of like all the possibilities. This is the, this is, these are um, things in my environment that I want to filter in instead of filter out, uh, whether it's red car or money opportunities or that people like me um, or whatever the thing is that you want. Uh, in the soup, in the great soup of reality, you, you obviously we filter out a huge amount. We might filter out 98% of the signals that we get in from the environment because we just can't, we can't make sense of everything at all moments, at all times, obviously. Um, by visualizing, you are priming yourself to recognize certain signals from your environment that you want, right? You're priming yourself for business opportunities. You may notice that someone has an opportunity that you didn't recognize before, right? Um, if you're priming yourself to believe like, oh, people actually like me or I'm actually attracted to the opposite sex. Obviously, you're going to meet people that are attracted to you and not attracted to you, but if you're priming yourself to 
look for those signals. You can like bring to the forefront of your reality those things that already probably existed. Like so many guys that I coach around dating, they have women hitting on them, <laughs> like or they have women that are interested, or they have uh, people in their lives that really like them, but they filter them out because they're looking. They're actually looking for negative experiences. Actually, looking for evidence that um, that uh, people don't like them. So that's what they find. That's what they highlight in the reality. Anyway, um, oh, so about visualization. So, how specific should goals be? And this is uh, something you know, um, the woman I'm falling in love with currently. Oh, if you're wondering when I expressed myself to her, it was it was it was requited, and uh, we're developing a very beautiful connection. Um, but we. A couple of weeks ago, um, we were speaking about our connection and speaking about um, our intention um, for ourselves. Like, what is the intention for our, our relationship? Um, and there's a temptation to go back into old goal setting mode. It's like, oh, we're going to experience this thing and we're going to have, you know, uh, you know, I write down my goals all the time. It's like, oh, we're going to, you know, do the, have these experiences and by this date and blah, blah, blah. But I was noticing even just thinking about that, that caused anxiety. Because I don't know what, you know, especially in the state of the world right now, I don't know what we're going to do together. I don't know what our lives are going to be like. I don't know how we're going to feel in the future. And if we have this idea of like, oh, we're going to have this event together at this time, all it can do is produce anxiety because now we're fixated on this outcome. We're attached to this outcome. And if it happens, it's not even going to be joyful. It's going to be a relief. If it doesn't happen or if there's any separation from this outcome that we are attached to, it's just going to cause us to feel bad. It might even... It might even detract us from an even better outcome that we couldn't possibly um, couldn't possibly uh, foresee. You know, it's blocking us off from surprise. So instead, uh, she brought up a metaphor, which is the positive use of metaphor. I mean, metaphor is great, uh, but you have to be careful of how you know recognizing when a metaphor is a metaphor. Anyway, um, she wanted a, a, what if our intention is to plant a seed, right? Now, what does that mean? Right? Obviously, we're not going to plant a literal seed, although maybe one day we'll do that as a symbolic gesture. We're going to plant the seed of our relationship. This is like right when we were starting to connect. And I wanted to up it because I like to 10x everything. Nah, I don't want to say it that way, but I wanted to make it bigger. It's like, well, what do we plant a forest? Right? And obviously, it's a metaphor. Right? We're not literally planting a forest. But what that uh, metaphor does is that there is something that there's many ways that that can show up in real life, but it is a feeling that is indestructible. And I want to read a quote by James Kars from my favorite book. Um, oh, actually, I wrote it down here. What is it? Uh, Metaphor is the joining of like to unlike such that one can never become the other. Metaphor requires an irreducibility, which means that like, if you set a, a concrete goal of I'm going to experience this exact thing in material reality, it's either going to happen or not. And it doesn't leave room for anything outside of that. Whereas if you have the metaphor of we're going to plant a forest together, or uh, uh, I'm going to blast off. I mean, I don't know you can pick your metaphor for whatever your goals are. That metaphor is indestructible, right? A metaphor cannot be broken because you're not actually referencing something physical. In fact, you're allowing reality to surprise you in many ways to live up to the, the metaphor, which is not... The metaphor lives in the neosphere. It doesn't try to mess around with the, with the, the geosphere, the biosphere. Anyway, so that's uh, what I've concluded as far as like setting intentions it's not about yeah anyway metaphor is better than uh quantified intention sometimes obviously if you have your metaphoric goal but you know uh google's metaphoric anyway i'm not i could go off on, on deep ends but not that that concrete goals aren't good not that smart goals aren't good but we're talking about like the really grandiose things that really mean something you know like 
what is the dollar amount that's going to make you happy? There is none. But to have a have a, a, a metaphoric goal around abundance, that is something you can live up to. That's something you always can move towards, and it can you can leave room for it to show up in different ways in your reality because. Uh, you know, you could set a $1 million goal, but what if there's an opportunity that gives you $10 million? You're going to say, well, no, my, my goal is $1 million? Then no. Okay. And so I think a welcoming surprise because the goal and the, the, what real abundance is, is and real magic is, if you want to indulge in, in mystical language, it's not about controlling reality, right? Like if you feel like you need to control reality, you're still living in scarcity. Like you're protecting yourself against the future because you don't trust, right? Real abundance and real infinite play is welcoming surprise and not trying to control reality. It's about allowing reality to delight, to delight you. <clears throat> okay, which brings us back to this whole thing of visualization, gratitude, visualization. The purpose of visualization is to know what cues to, to um, highlight. And I think the best types of visualization, and, and you hear this in Law of Attraction, folks, like they say, focus on the feeling, not on the actual occurrence. Like focus on the feeling you want to feel which I think ties to the metaphor, like what does planting a forest mean to myself and my beloved? Uh, it doesn't mean actual trees. It means a feeling that we can both feel. Uh, it means an abundance of love and nature or whatever. Um, as opposed to explanation, explanation is the opposite of metaphor. Explanation is the circuit three attempt to reduce things into words or terms that we can like package like, okay, we figured that one out. And you, hear, you hear this all the time, or you hear this very often, or I hear this very often, um, with like uh, pop psychology nerds, which of which I'm one, but you hear this from people of like, uh, you're talking about the mind, you're talking about how people behave, and they're like, they'll throw out the terms like, oh, that's confirmation bias, or uh, oh, that's the primacy effect, or you know, and I do this too, right? It makes you sound smart. Uh, you you bring up the psychological term, it's like, oh, well, I understand this because I know what the word is, but not really. The word is, is is representing an idea, a whole experience, right? Just because you you said the word doesn't mean that. Uh, it doesn't mean anything. The word is just a, it's just a signpost. It's not the actual thing, which is like the root of so many online arguments is people are mixing up the words for the idea. Um, and there's another quote I want to read about the unspeakable. So the whole idea behind metaphor is that real nature, like real reality, objective reality, which maybe we can't perceive directly because we're limited by our five senses and our perceptions. Uh, nature, uh, as Carr speaks, is unspeakable. The unspeakability of nature is the very possibility of language. And like recognizing when you speak, uh, at best, at best, we are abstracting a big idea. Uh, very rarely are we, um, I mean, there's no way for a map to completely describe all of reality. So I'm going to bring us down to, uh, let's start winding down. We're at the one hour mark. Uh, another quote I do want to read though. Metaphor has, is horizontal, reminding us that one's vision is limited, not what one is viewing. Right? When you speak in metaphor, you are recognizing that your words can't possibly describe the reality, um, which is why, yeah, it's just important to know when you're speaking in metaphor and to use metaphor intentionally, especially when speaking to yourself. Um, explanation seeks finality and certainty rather than opening to possibility. And um, yes, okay, removing clutter, original perception, okay. So visualization is priming yourself to recognize what parts of reality uh, you want to highlight and engage with more, right? Like if you go back to my, if I, if I go back to the the story I opened with, if I just had a, a slightly, if I if I really dug into the belief, even contrary to the evidence, because I was my I was physically feeling shitty, that I was doing well in in, in the fight, um, perhaps I would have actually recognized that I was actually doing okay in the fight, 
And I would have given the signal to the judge who was looking for me to see whether I thought I won it or not, and he would have thought I won, and it would have changed my entire reality. So what's the, opposite? What's the, what's the other end of visualization is the pre-priming. Gratitude is the post-priming. Gratitude is looking back at the things in your life that are the things that you do want to highlight and looking back and be like, I'm going to highlight that. I'm going to highlight the good friends I have. I'm going to highlight the fact that I do have money in my bank account. I'm going to highlight the fact that uh, maybe I got rejected 10 times, but that one that one woman really liked me or maybe my business is not doing okay, but look, I got a, you know X number of subscribers, blah, 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 whatever the thing is. Gratitude is uh, highlighting the things because by pre-highlighting and post-highlighting, you're now bringing those things to the forefront of reality. And even though those are neospheric things in the realm of ideas, we know that they actually do affect real reality more than anything else. And um, last few thoughts on original perception, because this is kind of going to Eckhart Tolle's realm of um, as we go into, as we remove the value judgments, as we stop thinking so much about the past and the future, um, and stop holding people responsible, other people responsible, we get into this, I'm calling it original perception, um, where we get to take in reality within it as, with as many signals as possible. So in Robert Anton Wilson's book, he, he speaks about, um, he was teaching psychology for a while, exopsychology, which is Timothy Leary's branch of psychology. Um, and he was uh, doing an experiment with his college students of uh, having everyone walk in and then closing their eyes and writing down everything that they could describe about the room. And it could be about anything. It could be details, it could be physical objects, it could be whatever. And they, they had like some long amount of time to write everything. And he found that um, the, the, the most perceptive person in the room uh, would come up with a certain number of signals from the room, n number of signals. And the total number of unique signals was 2n. And that was kind of consistent. It's like the, the most perceptive person in the room was always recognizing about half the things that you could possibly perceive in the room. Um, and, and he equated this with intelligence, like the more signals you can take in, because obviously if you're, and we can look at this in, in terms of reality creation, if you're constantly worrying, if you're constantly thinking about what other people are thinking, if you're constantly advertising, control your attention, you're not taking in as much as you can from, from your reality. You're missing out on opportunities, you're missing out on things, and simply um, even things like being able to read people, uh, empathy, being able to tell when people are lying, all these come from being able to shut up your mind and really just take in what the other person is giving you. Um, and that's like kind of the root of uh, intuition, like um, being able to take in more from your reality is what allows you to take in things that seem like not part of reality. And I spoke about this in my cult episodes, like there's all these experiences that, that I had that seemed para like paranormal psych, like telepathy and like mind reading. It wasn't really that, or, or rather these things that maybe seem like telepathy was simply like, if you could really take in everything about someone, like not only notice their eye color and their micro expressions, but like really like take in everything you feel when you're engaging with someone, like you're so present and you're so open to the signals they're giving you that you're just like absorbing all of this stimuli, you're gonna come up with better, um, better conclusions than if you were like not looking at their face and not like not, not picking up on anything. And then that's essentially, intuition is just next, like we call it extra, extra sensory perception, but really I think it's just High, high sensory perception. Anyway, opening the doors of perception um, and going beyond the five senses, whatever that means, whether it's a subconscious picking up or there's something you're picking up from the ethers magically. Um, and like entering the space where you can think of without words is hard, right? I mean, to just go a minute without letting words appear is hard, but it is a practice you can do 
Um, and I think a lot of us, you know, we seek this, and there's a whole joke of like men need to go into blank mode. Like John Gray, uh, who wrote Men Are From Mars, Women From Venus, he talks about this a lot. A lot of relationship people talk about this. Like there's something about the male brain that needs to shut off and veg out sometimes and go blank. Um, instead of using football or social media to do that, can you just do that? Can you just do that and just take in your environment? Like one of the best exercises I received from a coach um, was to sit on a park bench and do nothing and just perceive the environment. It, I mean, it, it is essentially meditation, but meditation on reality. Anyway, um, and the last thing I'll share about this, I've spoken about this in other episodes, um, the English language has this limitation uh, or has this um, vulnerability to confusing metaphor from rea for reality, or me confusing metaphor from explanation, and that's because we, we overuse the verb to be. I am, you are, he is, she is, it is. That verb is, is used for uh, explaining states of being. Um, in English, compared to, let's say, other European languages, we use um, gerunds a lot. Like, um, instead of, like, in, in French or Spanish, you would say, I write a book. Whereas in English, the more common way to speak it would be, I'm writing a book, I am writing, like, I am in a state of it. And these might not, it might not seem like a big deal, but as language creates reality, it, um, it confuses states of being with definitions and it confuses metaphor with explanations and a lot of people will take metaphor or what was once a metaphor as if it was it's uh, actual fact which is again why you see like these ridiculous arguments on the internet people don't realize that they're uh, that they're fighting with signposts rather than with real ideas um so anyway oh so the solution to this is uh, e prime which is something that alfred crozipsi came up with which is essentially speaking in english without the verb to be it might seem challenging because most of our common senses, senses, sentences, most of our common sentences use the verb to be. Uh, it's the most commonly used verb, but you actually can express pretty much every idea without the state of verb. Uh, instead of saying I am writing, you could say I write. It sounds a little strange at first, but it, it's, it means the same thing. But also when you're explaining something or explaining an idea, in order to have the sentence without the is, instead of saying this is unacceptable, you have to say something like, I perceive this as, uh, actually I'm using is again, right? Um, I would rather this not happen, right? You have to put the actual perceiver into the sentence rather than saying, this is unacceptable as if it's a fact. No, it's your opinion. I do not like this. That's a, that's a E prime statement because you're using real action verbs and you're saying something specific as opposed to saying, this is not okay. This is racist. This is fascist. This is leftist. This is rightist. Like the is just abstracts things as if it's an explanation, but it's really you're speaking of an opinion. Anyway, I'm saying anyway because I have this perception that you listening are coming to the conclusion before I finish explaining it. So I'm like, I may have saying too many words. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Um, that's all I'm going to say about that. I had some other thoughts on playing well with others, but that's a lot in there. And... Um, I forgot to say this announcement, but my new website is going to be up this week. Um, so like those discounts I was offering on courses, will be everything's going to be going back to normal price soon. Um, and I'm going to be sharing something on specifically the shifting of anxiety into abundance. As I've been speaking about in the last episode and this episode, I've come to understand that uh, the, the experience of abundance in our reality on every layer, one, two, three, like the different layers of reality, um, do come down to the things we're talking about, like our 
primal parts of our, our, our parts of our nervous system, whether they're primal or not, um, have certain goals, right? And in the same way that anxiety, it's in some stage of life, anxiety was not a bad thing to experience. It had a function, but as an adult, it doesn't really have a positive function typically. Um, all of our things, like our, our, our seeking for certainty and sanity versus opening to possibility, it limits our lives, but there was a function for it. If you can understand these functions and you can break the game of each stage, you can welcome yourself into, a, 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 um, into abundance as opposed to, to anxiety. Because I, I really, yeah, I've, I've been recognizing that scarcity, anxiety, contraction is on one end of this continuum of experience and abundance, expansion, and joy is on the other end, or like fear and love, you can split this up in any way, but it's kind of like this continuum. And if you can switch each circuit to the, the expansive side, things start to um, become great. And in, in this, this uh, I'm creating a mini course that should be out soon where you can kind of diagnose yourself of like, oh, where do I find myself switching, right? Like someone who's uh, contracting on their second circuit. And we're going to talk about second circuit and dominance hierarchies next week. Someone contracting on the second circuit, the way that scarcity shows up in their life is they always see themselves as low man in the totem pole. Someone who's contracting on the first circuit always is inexplicably anxious. Someone who's contracting on the third circuit, which we're talking about in this episode, um, is always seeking, is always feeling insane or is afraid of insanity. So they seek negative certainties rather than uh, positive possibilities. Um, so yeah, I'm going to share. If you're not on my email list, Join my email list and we're sharing out, sharing uh, some things on that for free, but only for the people on my email list. And there will be a mini course for not expensive eventually. Um, someone asked, what is gained upon my, on re meditating on reality as it is, is that you are removing the clutter and the filters of reality that are preventing you from uh, welcoming possibility, right? If, you're, if, you're for, if you have this idea of like reality should be, I think you and I have actually spoken about this. Um, there's like this reality that should be a certain way, whether it's because of your perceptions or perceptions from other people that you've adopted, and you have this separation, then you're always going like to, this, this separation of the ideal and reality is always going to make you feel shitty. And there might even be uh, an outcome that's even better than the one that you perceived of what things should be, and you're limiting yourself from that, as opposed to be like, everything is exactly the way it is. And I want everything to be the way it is. And this is perfect. And actually, this is like another idea that I forgot to mention. Like, instead of trying to achieve certain outcomes, which is not a bad thing to strive for, right? Like, have your money goals, have your love goals, have your adventure goals. They're, they're great. But have them in the moment, right? Have them that in this moment, I'm striving for this thing because in this moment, it's making me feel good, right? In this moment, I'm writing a story as opposed to I need to make this happen so I'll have a story. Um, that's the difference. I hope that made sense. Does that make sense? Are you still on? You want to tell me if it makes sense? Yeah, um, yeah and, and also like even with um, relating to other people, as I shared that story, I, you know, there's people I've gotten frustrated with um, in my life, people in my family, friends. Um, it's always because I am holding them to an ideal, sometimes in a covert way, sometimes as a covert contract, if like you should behave this way, not, not perceived um, uh, or not, not, not uh, communicated. And that's not fair to them, and it's only making me feel shitty, right? Because I'm I'm saying that this, and even like even resentment towards yourself, like oh I should be this way at this age, I should have this amount of money, or I should have this kind of life. Like who says you should? Like where, where did that idea come from? Why are you why are you constructing an ideal that is not this reality? Not to say that you shouldn't strive for things to be better and and whatever, but like write the story now, like. If you were uh, if you were watching a movie, maybe your life sucks in different ways, or maybe there's a bunch of things you don't like. Um, 
this is the beginning of a movie. Like this moment is the beginning of a movie where the hero has this thing that he or she wants and is going to strive towards that as opposed to uh, the movie started and everything was perfect. That's boring. Who wants to watch that movie? Not me. Um, okay. That's all. Thanks for watching, guys. Uh, make sure you're on my email list if you want to catch the stuff about anxiety and abundance. Next week, we're going to have um, the episode on dominance hierarchies. I already have my notes up, so it should be a good one. If you're in the Masculine Underground group and you have thoughts about dominance hierarchies or alpha stuff or emotional territorial psych, um, start a thread, comment about it. I'll probably start a thread about it because there's some good uh, good threads in the group about alphaness and, and dominance and violence between human beings. Um, I'm very excited to speak about this one. Other things that are coming up, uh, I'm going to have a, a psychologist on soon. Uh, he actually has some confirmed, so I'm not going to have his name, but we're going to speak about stages of development in men. I'm pretty sure he's going to be on. Um, and then, yeah, good stuff is going to happen in the world, in your life too. All right, goodbye.